Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us for another show. And uh, today we've got a special guest, and we're going to introduce her in just a moment. But in case you're wondering who I am, I am uh, C.R. Wiley, the senior pastor for the Public Presbyterian Church of Manchester in Manchester, Connecticut. I have taught philosophy at the college level, and I've written a bunch of stuff. So enough about me. Tom. Tom Price, a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, teaching both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and also teaching philosophy and other things at various locations, which I will not disclose. (laughs) Glenn. And I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of early modern European history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. I also have another book coming out probably later this month, actually, on uh, political theology published through Canon Press. It will be called Leviathan Reborn. Okay. So it's changed the name again. Okay. But it's, but it's, it's on uh, Protestant resistance theory. That's one of the big themes in it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, good stuff. Well, anyway, uh, for those of you who are, who are regulars, you, you know that uh, we had, uh, been recording our show by Zoom for a long time, and we finally got back to a pub a few weeks ago, and now we're back on Zoom. It's not because we've been kicked out of the pub. It's because <laughs> we've got a friend who's with us today from Chicago, and, and it would be hard for her to commute and be with us at our pub, so we're going to have a time with her via Zoom, but we all have a drinks, so at least that much is the same. <laughs> and uh, it's uh, Rachel Fulton Brown, and she's holding up. What, what do you got there, Rachel? Uh, water. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's, but it's uh, no, it's the fancy stuff that my brother likes from Mexico, right? Uh, now I forget so, what it, what it's called. So it's got little, fizzy. Fizzy, yeah. It's got little bubbles in it, so that's yeah. good. Yeah. Anyway, but anyway, Rachel Rachel Fulton Brown uh, teaches at the University of Chicago. She's an associate professor of history there, and uh, Rachel and I met a couple years ago. We were both speakers at the Touchstone Conference uh, out in Chicago, and uh, we didn't know each other before that, but we met at the conference. And uh, Rachel had a friend with her that was kind of a fascinating person to, to, to meet, my, you know, for me anyway. It's uh, Milo. And I'll let you talk a little bit more about Milo in a minute. But Rachel gave a great talk on, on uh, Mary and uh, themes related to, to her in medieval Christianity. And uh, I talked about, uh, I talked about uh, basically uh, Virgil and the Aeneid and piety and stuff like that. But anyway, uh, we, we met each other at that time, and I, uh, you know, based on that initial connection, we, we became friends on Facebook, and so it's been uh, great to kind of keep that relationship going a little bit. And one of the things that Rachel is really into is Tolkien, and she's got a new uh, video series called The Forge of Tolkien, and that's really what we kind of want to zero in on today. But before we do that, um, I thought it'd be kind of fun to talk a little bit about Milo and your relationship with him. And I know you got a book about that relationship. So uh, fill us in. Thanks, Chris. Uh, thank you for having me. And um, I, you know, one day I, I, you usually meet at a pub, right? We could be inklings and we're going to have to, <laughs> right. we're, we're going to have to try harder, I think, to, to end up <laughs> at that pub. Um, but I'm, I'm very grateful to get to be here um, on, on Zoom in, in 2020, whatever. I, I heard someone talking about it Actually, one of my one of my fellow, um, not, he does live streams, and I do the, my videos are pre-recorded on on unauthorized. But one of my fa- fellow live streamers talking talking about 
2020 is a year of perfect vision. So <laughs> right. if I, mean, I, I, I hope I have better vision now than I did, I did maybe four years ago, but there there's, I, so I'm happy to get to talk just a little bit about Milo. This is, is the book um, that I published. We published uh, last December, November, December came out, but t today that we're recording is a very significant anniversary. Um, I actually, I wrote to Milo, on and it's in the book right um september 17th 2016 but the the first blog post that i wrote in which i mentioned him and that was like this big sort of breakthrough for me was september 29th 2016 right and today um is of course the feast of saint michael the archangel and you know in in english terms right that'd be the beginning of michaelmas term and the beginning of the yeah. academic year so there's yeah. there's always lots of like symbolic layers and whatever is going on with me, and it, it seems with Milo too, and I, you know, but with reflecting on what it was like four years ago, right? 2016, the reason I was writing about it, what writing, the reason I started writing about Milo and the reason I was sort of intrigued by his, his campus tour was we had just at the University of Chicago had the, the deans of the college and, and the, the dean of students send out a letter saying we would not have safe spaces on campus at the University of Chicago. Well, you know, as they say, fast forward to 2020, and I, as far as I can tell, we're just as safe a space as everywhere, everywhere else, right? <laughs> I, I, back in 2016, you know, we, we, were, we were the ones standing bold for academic freedom and say, come here and, and wrestle with ideas and be challenged. Um, now I'm, I'm on leave again, so I'm a little, you know, I, I don't, I'm not really participating in whatever they're doing, but they had the, they had the welcoming ceremony for the students virtually really and and i think you know i think it's it's lovely that we get to speak on zoom i i think it's great you know it's like doing the talking videos and and you know live streaming i learned a lot from watching live streams that helped me with my zoom class in in the spring which i did my talking class but to to imagine that we can we can accomplish the same kind of education virtually as we do in person and that and that that's a that that's a sacrifice we're willing to make for something that I think is pretty imaginary. Imaginary is very interesting. So I'd love to talk. I can keep going, but you maybe you want oh, yeah. to no, focus no, me a little more. No, yeah, that's great. In fact, we 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 sh we share your convictions about the imaginary crisis. Oh, oh my gosh, it's so and and so my so I'm on the the Forger Tolkien right. It's like you have like you thought you were dangerous talking to me because I'm friends with Milo. <laughs> so 2016, right? So the, the, <laughs> no, the other, well, the other people. Maybe for some of our folks who maybe are not familiar with Milo and his uh, persona, and so sure. Why don't you fill us in a little bit on him? Um, okay, so the the book again is is the Milo Chronicles, and it's um, blog posts that I wrote about Milo from 2016 through 2019 through last year. Um, he was, if you have, if, you, if you're not quite clear about who, who he is just by name, you will have heard of the Berkeley riot in February, 2017, right? Which was the, the, the sort of six month mark after I'd started writing about him, that he was on a tour on college campuses, giving talks mainly about, you know, he was, he was stumping for Trump at that point, right? So it was a little bit political, but he was mainly talking about cultural issues, right? Um, feminism, his, his 
um, slogan was feminism is cancer, which he <laughs> it developed out of a, t a tweet poll that he did. Like, would you rather your child have feminism or cancer and cancer won, right? Um, he also <laughs> talked, he, he, ta he talked about religious questions, like the differences between Christianity and Islam. Um, he talked about um, the, the last talk that he was able to give before Antifa blew up at Berkeley um, and canceled his talk there. The last significant talk he was able to give in that tour was against um, abortion. Um, really? That one was called No More Dead Babies. So, yeah. I mean, the thing is, it's all still really topical, right? If you think about the, it's like, have we moved on from 2016? Well, we're, we're sort of this intensified moment. Now, now, not only are we not allowed to speak on campus, things like maybe feminism actually yeah. has backfired in very important ways on both women and men, but we're not even allowed to speak, right? right. It's like right. without covering right. our faces, yeah. it's this, this incredible yeah. intensification. So, you know, it's interesting that, that, that with the Supreme Court um, nomination that we just ha we, that right. was just announced, we're we're going to have to think about what abortion means really, really right. seriously. And Milo has always been just adamant uh, on on that issue, um, Austin Ruse, um, Catholic um, writer, wrote a very nice piece on Milo after so February twenty seventeen is the big deal, right? The Berkeley riot. I write a piece for the University of Chicago Divinity School newsletter about the significance of the Berkeley riot and the sort of crisis that I saw us in that was manifested in the response to Milo's talks. Of it's a religious crisis, right? It's it's right. a crisis of I said, you know, an inability to actually think through the theological underpinnings of our yeah. culture, right? Okay. Well, that got me um, um, condemned by the Divinity School for not being diverse enough. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, right, right. I, that 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 was hilarious, and that I think you you were sort of more aware of that, Chris. By the time I got to Touchstone, right, because this was right. a year and a half. Touchstone was a year and a half after that. Um, but uh, my Divinity School article came out on a Thursday. The following Monday, the political hit was, you know, uh, achieved against Milo that made him lose his entire career, right? right, uh, accu right. Accusing him of promoting the thing that he had been a victim of, which, you know, um, is a very, I mean, he's, so he's gay and was abused as a, as a t adolescent by a priest. Right. right. And, yeah. and, and that, that's, Chris, you met me at Touchstone right when he had just written the book about that experience. And right. um, he, w one of the things that he was interested in coming to the conference for was to, to meet Lee Podols, who oh, yeah. um, actually did a, did a um, blurb for the book. Right. Um, and we also talked to Tony Eastland and, and obviously um, uh, uh, quite a few others, Robbie George was there as well. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 and the touch on conference was on patriarchy, right? On fatherhood right. And, and the need for strong fathers. And my talk wasn't actually about Mary. <laughs> it was, <laughs> I, I, I talked about God the Father, right? right, and, right. And, and, and that, I, you know, was an interesting meditation for me, trying to understand why that sort of devotion hadn't really been the feature in my, even my own studies. Like, the Our Father is one of the prayers of the Rosary, but I hadn't really thought that through. Um, right. fully so so Milo and I have been tangled up in all of these religious cultural academic sort of controversies n now for four years yeah well you know my my impression of Milo from a distance you know I didn't I didn't uh, follow him at all closely but he struck me as being you know a really savvy and flamboyant figure and I was actually pleasantly surprised at uh, a couple of things when I met met him one is his knowledge of Christianity I just 
you know, I just didn't know that he was as conversant. Uh, but the other thing is that he's really seems like a decent person and easy to talk to and, and struck me as a guy who was actually interested in listening to other people say things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so those were, those were great to see a couple of great things to see. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear it, right? Because it's, it's easy. No, it's easy to have this. I mean, that was what the original sort of my, and I think this continues to be an issue, right? Um, not just for Milo, but my, my original curiosity about him was aroused by that, you know, he had been here in Chicago at DePaul in the spring before our, I started writing to him. Um, and, you know, he'd been shouted off stage, right, by Black Lives Matter activists. And, you know, the past is the present kind of feeling that the, the DePaul police officers had been told to stand down and not interfere with that protest of mm. Milo's talk. Right. Um, so I was, I was a little, I was somewhat aware of him and I was curious. Right. And it, you know, the, the as a scholar, surely the thing you do is I hear these bad things about, you know, the inquisition, or I hear these bad things about usury and, and money lending, or, you know, that's a bad thing. Or I hear, <laughs> or I hear these, you know, bad things about, you know, other religions or something like that. Well, it is your response to, you know, scream and yell and refuse to look, or is it go read another book? Right. I, and, yeah. and, and that we're, we're now in this world where we can do these videos, right. And you can, you know, make, not just have conversations in a pub that then you go write about, but record the conversation in the pub, share that out. Why not go and watch a lot of videos of someone and see whether or not what you've heard in the grapevine or in the, the, right. the national media is true. And I, I started watching and I realized, okay, so there's an act, right? And that's in the, the book has this mask on the cover, right? right it's right, like, right. It, it's, it's, <laughs> the mask um that what i saw doing we're all about masks right now right 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 <laughs> but right. i saw was milo wearing this big giant gold mask which was a performance in order to get people to listen to the arguments that he was making and you know the the sort of rhetoric the rhetoric and the dialectic that are always playing out i didn't tell you who my other my other dangerous people are so milo is as dangerous as, as you found, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> so I trust you'll be willing to look up some of the people that I'm on unauthorized with. Um, the, the one that I mentioned, I heard the 2020 thing on was Owen Benjamin's live stream. He, he's gone through a, bit, a big journey, right, uh, over the last several years, some of which I've been less, like, sympath you know, uh, not sympathetic to, but um, taken by in, 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 in the sort of, um, emotional moment, right? But you know, he he set up this. He, he's he's living out homesteading. He used to be a like Hollywood actor. Um, uh, he was he had the same agent as Jordan Peterson did, like the CAA. I think he was signed by them. I hope that's right. Um, but he stepped away from all of it, right? Because he 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 didn't want to um, the, the take the ticket, right? He didn't want to pay the price that meant selling his soul to be able to be famous. Um, and that has kept, just like for Milo, I mean, Milo refused to take that ticket a number of times. Um, and I've written about it a lot in, in Milo Chronicles, you know, the numbers of times that people thought they could buy him. And he comes out with saying something that, oh my gosh, how could you possibly say that? Like Robert <laughs> right. Mercer, right? When he was, when he was funding Milo and then Milo was saying stuff that Mercer found divisive. And it's like, well, if you're going to speak truth, you're going to upset people because you're telling them things that are hard to hear because they need to hear them. Like you're too 
you're drinking too much, right? That that's that's a real that's a real winner. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, just just maybe, don't say that today. <laughs> right. Well, or you know, maybe maybe you shouldn't be cheating on your wife, right? Or and and this, I mean, and this and this is the hardest one for people to hear from Milo. It's like maybe you know, homosexuality isn't like the perfect lifestyle. Right, right, uh, and and that's how he, you know, I was I was first aware of him um, from Chadwick Moore writing an article about him for one of the gay um, glossies, and you know Chadwick basically lost his job after that for you know like not demonizing Milo um, because Milo was you know saying look some of the stuff that the the LGBT movement says is harmful right to people. Um, and you know, so you come in and you say stuff like that and you, you call divisive. Well, Owen, um, Benjamin said similar things that got him thrown out and now he's homesteading in Idaho right? <laughs> and, 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 you know, raising his kids and he's, he's built this community of people around him. They call them bears. Right. And so since I, on my blog am fencing bear, I'm an honorary <laughs> bear, right? Although I've been, I, Owen and I just did live stream last week. And we were, I've been online as a bear longer than he has. Even though he's been a bear for a long. So we're both bears, right? And the bears are collecting around, and they're making art, they're making businesses, they're you know Great. learning to garden, they're you know. Let's how do we build the culture up? It's a real Tolkien. We're gonna get yeah. to Tolkien, right? That's why Fox Day, who is Owen's friend, and they set up Modern mm. Authorized together, asked me first to do a medieval history series, which you can see on unauthorized, but also to do the Forge of Tolkien because they, they want their channel to be about building culture, right? It's not, it's, it's not about sitting around moaning about, you know, those crazy leftists or, you know, the secular world or um, it's Christian, but it's, it's, it's about, and, and this, this is why I was, I was absolutely delighted to be asked to do the Forge of Tolkien, right? Which is about where you make stuff, right? right, yeah, right, and, yeah, and, right. And, and, and the first episode <laughs> is on that, that metaphor of Tolkien's invitation to subcreate and the Forge being the place, like at Smith of Wooten Major, making both useful and beautiful things, right? So it's right. The, 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 my series, it, I mean, one, it's sympathetic to the to the whole project of Unauthorized. Um, and Unauthorized has other channels, too, where on gardening and um, comics. There's a there's a really popular one on, on um, comics. Um, uh, Barcelona Life, some of Vox's friends talk about what it's like living living in Spain. Uh, you know, so the, 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 the idea is we're here for literature, we're here for home, we're here for stories, we're here for theology and history and, and sort of building culture. You know, these themes are all things that we're very much in, in, you know, engaged with as well, and we really are glad to have you on the show, and we want to get into the, to the Forge a little bit, but I wanted to see if maybe Tom and Glenn had, had sort of some, some thoughts uh, that maybe you can respond to, Rachel, based on what you've just uh, talked about a little bit. Tom, you have anything that comes to mind? Um, yeah, a couple things. Well, I, I remember those, uh, those um, events with uh, uh, Milo, actually. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how I was watching it with my wife, but uh, I remember saying way back when. I was actually very glad to see someone take that kind of stance in, in that kind of um, increasingly um, disgusting environment, if you will. And, and one of the things I think I, I, I remember when that event happened, because I, I was at... I mean, I was finishing up my doctoral work in Oxford, probably uh, 2006, 2007. I kind of took my time over there, traveled a bit. 
Um, but I, I remember all these ideas floating around, and I remember, but I remember people kind of trying to put them to okay academic use, you know. Um, but then something shifted by the time I got out and started raising my kids, and you know, I, I was teaching adjunct only, um, still am actually. Um, so I, I didn't, I didn't have my, I wasn't involved in you know the day to day of the university. So I saw something rapidly shift. And I even remember telling my wife, I said, you watch what's happening on campus right here. And, and um, the way in which, you know, people of integrity are cowering to this almost like childlike behavior of these people demanding their viewpoint not be challenging. This is going to spread to the streets very quickly. And, and now we're, we're really there. But I mean, I remember really the day, it was actually when I think Milo was at Berkeley. I think that was the event when they were having all this, you know, people disrupting his speech and stuff. I think it happened to Ben Shapiro and, and different, different characters as well. And yeah, this, this, this increasing intelligence, but I'm talking from the time, I mean, I knew critical race there. All this stuff had been floating around for ages and, you know, you Knew how to you knew how to digest it as an intellectual and find out okay what little semblance of something was okay in it and then put it in a larger you know philosophical or theological frame. But now it's taken as a, a dogma. <laughs> it's not contested, and you have I mean all the way up to the highest powers, you have people not wanting to allow this kind of dogma to be challenged in any sense of the word. I mean, it's the most extreme fundamentalism from the top of powers down. How in the world did we get, I mean, just in your opinion, from 2006 or seven to now, to where that became so, so incredibly dominant and, and has taken someone like Milo, which would have been a favorite of most universities to where marginalized and, and demonized? Uh, well, uh, of the many things that happened with me in the story with Milo is I converted to Catholicism. I'm sorry, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. We've, no. Got lot, we've got lots of Catholic friends. and uh, I, 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 in fact, grew up Presbyterian, right? Um, right, right. So, and and that, that's, I've done a lot of videos. If you look on my blog on Bear on Air, I have like links to all my videos. And people, the Catholics have all wanted to talk to me about how I converted. Um, that... I now understand this. The other dangerous person I've talked to is I did some videos with E. Michael Jones recently. Um, and that's why I was, had usury on the mind because I was reading right, his right. economic theory uh, in Baron Metal. And I understand now one, one thing, I mean, the medievalists have gone as nuts in my, you know, in academia as, as pretty much everybody else, because you know, that's, that's my story, right? That they decided I was, I was all of the, the right labels. Um, fascist fascist is right. the mildest yeah. that they call me um <laughs> uh that um i think what enabled me over the long run to see what was going on is because where my scholarship lives is the middle ages right and it's like chris remembers that i talked about the virgin mary i think that's i think that's because you and i were standing by the books whispering <laughs> at each other <laughs> for like some through somebody else's talk talking about mary um that you know i work on scriptural exegesis, I work on the imagery, I work on the story, figural, like if you read Auer, Eric Auerbach's Mimesis on the, yeah, the way in which the Old Testament is, is figuring the New Testament yeah. and that, that kind of layering of imagery. So, you know, one, when I started watching Milo, the first thing I saw, and that's why, you know, the sort of 
the mask imagery and the, the it's like this is, it's, you say this is the letter and behind it's the spirit or vice versa right that the, the, you're looking for the the symbolism and the meaning um and i've always from that perspective it, it works for tolkien too i've always from that perspective been a bit out of step with modernity now i understand why <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. and and i think you know <coughs> It's not something that happened in 2006. It's not something that happened yeah. in, in 1986, for example, mm -hmm. when I graduated from college. It's not something that happened in 1926 yeah. when you're in Weimar, Germany, with this you know, breakdown rules and, and all the sex, the sex um, experimentation and stuff that they're doing. I've been reading a lot in the, from jo Joan, Dr. Jones writes about that in some of his other books on Libido Dominandi and Monsters from the Id. Um, we are we are in what i always said is this theological crisis right and it, it's mm -hmm. it the the the, the, the <clears throat> it definitely goes back to the enlightenment yeah. and it goes back to the enlightenment you know def, de, description of human beings as machines and and this yeah. i'm i'm really getting this from from mike jones monsters from the Ed, where he's talking about horror and the way in which you know that you had the french revolution and then frankenstein and there's a very direct relationship between mm. the French Revolution and Mary Shelley's <clears throat> writing Frankenstein. And it's her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, talk about feminism, right? Mm -hmm. Who goes to Paris in the midst of the, the, the revolution and, you know, has, as these English people did, this sort of fantasy version of the liberation that's going to be coming out of, of the revolution. But of course, that liberation is grounded in philosophical arguments that, you know, like the Marquis de Sade, who says, or la matrie, man is machine, right? Yeah. And if if we're all machines, then you and you know the, the sort of coping mechanism they use for that is all this rationalization, right? It's like we, we, we can we can just have as much sex as you want because we're basically machines, and then we're going to philosophize about this. Well, you know the upshot of all of that is that's wrong right because <laughs> yeah, we're yeah. not machines we we you know our body and soul and the more you try to lie to yourself about simply being a machine and saying i can have you know whatever sexual activities i do up to and including um you know killing someone right right, that's right. Like, that the crises that we're in right now looking at you know the pedophilia charges is what milo got labeled as right he supports pedophilia and it's like well because you know he'd actually been victimized by someone who abused him when he was 13 or he says 13 or 14 right he's still a child obviously um you know that, that we're suddenly flip flip that over and you have people trying to to justify it now yeah, right it's like yeah, it's, it's 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 astonishing that you can have people's reputations destroyed by the same accusation that sometimes the same person will then celebrate right yeah, as right, as, right. as and so we're in this incredibly you know morally and theologically confused yeah moment but it, it's 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 at least as it's at least as old as in fact modernity and you know the the monsters include frankenstein who comes out of mary shelley trying to live up to her mother and father's sort of free love dictums by running away with um percy Bysshe shelley and therefore he commits adultery against Harriet, his wife, who then kills herself, right? And yeah, voila, Frankenstein. Um, and, um, you know, we get Dracula. The, Mike Jones talks about Dracula in the context of syphilis, fears of syphilis oh. and the contamination of the blood. Um, gets to Alien, which he says is, you know, the, the modernity's horror um, at abortion, mm. right? Women's fertility and, and you know, the, the, the alien monster is... Um, you know, in the spaceship that's basically female 
shaped and they find all the eggs, right? And they can't get rid of the eggs. I mean, the number of times, right? Um, whatever her name right. is, Sigourney Weaver's character. Ripley has to try to get rid of the fetus, right? And it just keeps coming back and she can't kill it and can't kill it and can't kill it. And then, you know, by episode, you know, Aliens 3, she has to kill herself because there's nothing left, right? What I'm wondering is zombies, right? And that's, that, zombies are the, the, the odds, right? It's like we have, you know, whatever happens at the turn of the millennium, the fall of the Twin Towers and, and so forth. And we have this sort of rupture in, in our culture. And the, the, the zombie movies, I've been wondering about zombies for, for ages. And yeah. I'm, start, I'm, I'm starting to think now, it's like we've got we've sort of people, you feel like this is like you can't, nobody wants to think anymore. Zombies eat your brains. Zombies eat right. your, and, and your brain is, this is me. This isn't Mike Jones. I'm making this up as I, as I think <laughs> go along, right? <laughs> that, that zombies eat your brains, which suggests, you know, we're only our physical meat self, right? Yeah, and zombies yeah. are basically literally meat puppets, right? They can't, mm, they, right. Can't, they have no thoughts anymore. All they can do is brains. But I, I don't watch, I don't watch horror movies. And, and right. clearly horror appeals to people, I think, who can't give up this, these contradictions. You can't look at it and say, look, adultery is bad. You know, yeah. look, you know, sexual promiscuity, you know, turns you into a vampire and, and you're using people for, for your own, you know, physical satiation. But in fact, you know, you're, you're turning yourself into the undead. I think the zombie problem, you can say 2006, right? That, that's a peak of zombie. Right, right. Stories and such. We need to figure out what's going on with the zombies. Mm. And it's, you know, that, that what we've all turned into with this, this COVID crisis is, you know, you, you can't speak, you can't go outside, you can't do anything because you, by way, way of doing that, will kill somebody else, right? We, we're yeah. all, by definition, zombies now. That, those are great. Those are great thoughts. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 th there's a lot to work with there, Rachel. But but uh, Glenn, I would like to hear if you have anything you'd like to sort of throw throw in to have, have Rachel respond to the, the number of things that have just gone stunning. <laughs> but um, what uh, I there is somebody who has actually done a uh, an analysis of zombies and vampires, where they equate it with politics. So they point out that when Republicans are in charge, vampires are in because Republicans have this reputation of being sort of aristocratic. Whereas when the Democrats are in, it's the mindless masses. <laughs> <laughs> so zombies. I don't think words. it follows through consistently, but I just thought I'd throw that one out there. <laughs> well, the, the, the vampires, I mean, being vampiric, there's the... Um, you know, they have to convert people to being vampires, right? So the the sort of sexuality, I th I'm more persuaded by Jones's sexuality argument that they are, um, they're not fertile, right? They can't have children because right, right. they're dead. Um, right. and, and the only way that they can, you know, get more vampires is by sucking. It gets pretty graphic very quickly right, <laughs> right, if you right, start right, thinking right. through. Right. And, yeah. and that that is, you know, and that they're appealing Right, it's you know the vampires are, are elegant and, and right. dangerous and sexy and and so forth. I mean, with Dracula, it seems to be it was definitely syphilis, right? Um, because you can pass it on without, um, you know, like you can be you you can have it and not show symptoms for a while, and you and the men slept with the prostitutes and pass it on to their innocent wives. 
and so forth. And that happens in Stoker's Stoker's setup. Okay. So I think with the zombies, I mean, it's like the, the the yes, the masses definitely fit. But I think you know the meat puppets is what I I would go to now. It's like the, this this claim that we simply are soulless. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things that came to mind when you were just uh, talking there, Rachel, when you used the phrase uh, monsters from the id, uh, Forbidden Planet. I don't know if you remember the, the film Forbidden Planet from the 50s with Leslie Nielsen actually playing a, ser a serious character. He's the captain of the spaceship. But that phrase that, that monsters from the id is kind of the heart of the story. But anyway, that's so. So, listeners to the podcast should should look up Forbidden Planet with Leslie Nielsen and watch that, and you'll actually get what Rachel is referring to. It's actually an interesting kind of tie-in. But I know we want to talk about Tolkien. I know we want to talk about the Forge of Tolkien. I, I want, want to throw one more thing in. Chris. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. <laughs> done. <laughs> um, I've got another uh, dangerous person that you, if you don't know her, you need to you need to get to know. Uh, it was someone we had on the podcast before, a woman named Moira Grayland Pete. She's the daughter of Marion Zimmer Bradley. Oh, Vox Day published her book. Yeah, oh, right, it's right. intense. Yes, no, yeah. I, I, kudos to you. That is a powerful book. If, we had um, we had we had Mora on the show, so she's on an earlier episode of the podcast. Well, now now I'm jealous of you. <laughs> <laughs> the, what I want to suggest is that at a future episode we get both of you on. Oh, I would love fun. that. I would love that. She no, I so Vox so Vox Day unauthorized <laughs> is the, the the video platform, um, and you can get to my Forge of Tolkien videos through my Fencing Bear at Prayer blog. And there's a there's a post there that links you to and explains how to subscribe. It's a little tricky, um, but Vox also has a publishing house called Castelia House, and Castelia published Moira's book, The Last Closet. Yes, um, yeah. yes, no. That that she showed the the nut the, the the degree to which her parents, and yeah. I mean, particular mom with the the Marion Zimmer Bradley with the Mists of Avalon. Right. That's that's demonic stuff. Yeah. You know, so, some, I grew up in Scientology and so there's a kind of a kind of bohemian creepy weirdness in my life, in my background. And uh, a lot of folks who are kind of, in, you know, sort of middle American and growing up in sort of Norman Rockwell-esque uh, environments have this, this sort of weird fascination with, with things outside that world. And almost, uh, I think that they're uh, easy marks for for stuff and i think that you know what what uh you know marion zimmer bradley is about in terms of you know her work in, with science fiction um it's a it's kind of like a gateway drug kind of thing you know you get into that world of science fiction and fantasy at least back in the day when it was largely at least in terms of the published work um relatively wholesome and <laughs> relatively Marion uh, Zimmer Bradley was never wholesome. <laughs> well, I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm not saying that she was, but what happens is when you get what, but there, there are like two or three steps to Marion Zimmer Bradley that okay. comes through come that. So you end up sort of kind of, uh, you know, kind of moving from one thing to another and then you come to her and the next thing you know, you're in this weird kind of environment. But anyway, that's, that's, uh, Something. Pedophilia? Yeah, right. No, I mean, that's what the last closet is, and that, that um, Moira um, had to have her father arrested. Yeah, right, right. Um, when she found him molesting an 11-year-old. It's, right. it's like, she's a courageous woman. Yeah, oh, and, and what I, can't, I guess what I was getting at is, is that he did a lot of this stuff at 
you know, uh, science fiction conventions. Mm-hmm. He was predator. He was a predator at science fiction conventions back in the day. We're talking sixties, seventies, that kind of thing. So imagine you're a kid that, that's grown up reading, you know, Ray Bradbury and you know, you know, people like that, you know, from the fifties. And and you go to a sci-fi convention and there's this creepy guy working the crowd. Um, I guess that's what I was getting at. But anyway, that's, but, but that's, that's no, that's actually that actually matters. And one, it's again, it's older than it's older than the fifties, right? This is, this is what I've, I mean, it's, I've been on quite a journey since 2016, let me tell you. Um, and it's, um, to see the degree to which, I mean, I, I think Lewis Carroll is, is, has some problems, right? The, the, yeah, the, the, yeah. the girls that he wrote about, he wrote the Alice stories for that. I'm, 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 you know, talking about Tolkien, one of the episodes I did was stories for children, right? And how interesting, the um, critics try to make it out as bad that he's writing for stories for children. And he, he gets very adamant that he's, he's really not. And you can, you can see him wanting to, I'm, I worried about how much children's literature is in fact grooming. Mm, um, mm. And uh, you know, the, it's like Alice in Wonderland is there's a way in which you can see it really, it, it could be grooming there, right? Mm-hmm. But you're making these special stories for children. Owen was reading a book that, um, this is Owen Benjamin on his, on unauthorized, was, was reading a book that someone sent him about a boy, it's from the 50s, right? So before space travel, like 58 or 59. And it was about, you know, taking this, this boy by himself with these adult men and they're going to go up in the rocket, right? And you know, Owen's just like, you know, being Owen about how, how clear how it it's clearly about getting the kids away from their parents and you know like he's strapped into the the chair and it's going to you know rattle and push and you're on top of this big rocket and you're just like okay fine i believe it now too right right you know the, the way the degree to which we are all you know always having to deal with this kind of evil it's not new mm-hmm. it's just it's yeah. just not new yeah i think that's a great point now uh, let's get to Tolkien, though. I, I know that uh, we've kind of gotten into the muck here a bit, and it's important to do that. <laughs> but uh, I think that one of the things that we can all agree upon, and even the people who, who hate him can agree uh, you know, uh, with, is that Tolkien's wholesome. <laughs> there's, there's a kind of wholesome cleanness to Tolkien. And uh, so you've got the forge of Tolkien, and, you, and, and I think that by that image you're talking about his creative process. Can you talk a little bit about your about your uh, video series? Um, so I've, I've explained that, yes, it's about his creative process. When you watch the series, my um, cover page has a picture of a little blocks, a building with little blocks, and the, and the, the, out, the outro page is, is the full picture of it, and that's a forge, right? And they're built with these little stones that I have, these Ankerstein, which are a German, late 19th century German toy, um, like, but like, graduated up to adult level hobby sort of building and that that's meant to you know sort of symbolize that you're coming here to practice making things with me in in the series and it's it's grounded in the series that I the, the course that I teach at the University of Chicago um, it's called the course at Chicago is Tolkien medieval and modern so you see mm-hmm. the tension between the medieval and, and modernity is, is there and I've taught that course for um, six times since 2005. It's every three years. And that course itself was designed with this project of in, 
taking up Tolkien's invitation that he has in the letter to Milton Waldman to, you know, he, he made this legendarium and he hoped that other minds and hands would come to it and, you know, bring with, you know, plays and music and art and, and so forth. And if you think about, you know, the level of fan fiction, which his his family is, I think, sort of ambivalent about, but the amount of, you want something fertile as opposed to sterile, right? All of the work that Tolkien's storytelling has inspired, uh, you know, since since the books, the um, Lord of the Rings came out in the 50s, is, I think, testament to I mean, the true fertility of his of his um, vision, right? And in the course that I teach at, at the University of Chicago, they ha they get to do a final project, which is either write a paper in scholarly mode or make something, right? And I mean, over over the years, I've had such just like we had a play, we've had rock operas, we've had lots of cooking, um, poetry, lots and lots and lots of poetry, um, Hobbit um, stuffed toys. Um, art installations. So it's a, the, the the creativity that just that Tolkien's world unlocks. I think it has to come from his own theological appreciation of our being made in the image and likeness of a maker, right? And in my um, the second or third video, I can't, the Mythopoeia um, video, I talk about his the poem that he wrote for C.S. Lewis, where he um, he's he's trying to convince Lewis that myths are productive in a productive fertile right and saying you know we make still in the in the image in which we were made we make we're made in the image and likeness of a, a creator an artist a maker and we're called to be artists and makers in that way and that i see you know it's like that's the the you know the, a, a term for it right you know the christian imagination the poetic imagination um the, the kind of when Tolkien and Lewis are writing their stories, they're doing it because they say, nobody writes the kinds of stories we like now in modernity. Um, so we're going to have to work, make our own, right? And then we're called to participate in that Christian response of, of worship and joy and, and storytelling. So when you look at, you know, what Tolkien's, the reason the critics don't like Tolkien's stories is they're not grooming children. <laughs> they're, 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 they're in fact, you know, the hobbits are children, clearly, right? And in stature, if not, if not, you know, behavior, and that, you know, Pippin's younger and things like that. But they are, it, it, they're resisting that tendency of all modernity to go, you know, follow the Marquis de Sade and and you know make smut and then philosophize about it, right? It's like the, the, the critics are always saying that Tolkien doesn't deal with real questions, right? Because he doesn't, and I say now, it's because he doesn't write stories that are intended to, to corrupt children into right, right. being, you know, being sexualized before they're, they're adults. And conversely, you know, his, the, the, the stories that he writes are all predicated on fertility, family lineages, creating families. The great hero of The Lord of the Rings is Sam, who gets to go, you know, one, you know, he resists the ring because all he wants is his own little garden. Right. Um, and two, you know, he gets to go home and have a family and plant trees in the Shire. And, and so when people respond to Tolkien as being wholesome like that, it's like, it's not, it's not that there's not difficulty that they go through, that Sam and Frodo obviously have to like survive the trenches, right? Not necessarily a wholesome place to be, but they, um, the, 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 the whole feel of Middle Earth and the whole feel of Tolkien storytelling is redemptive in, in that sense. It's like saying what, what's magic is not, you know, so power over creation, 
or you know the wizard it's like the, the the kind of being able to say a spell and, and force other people to do your will what's magic is making beautiful mm-hmm, mm-hmm, things yeah that's 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 marvelous and uh, of course there's there's this uh, puzzlement that uh, say for example the elves or galadriel in particular have when it when hobbits will say i'd like to see some elf magic and she's like well i'm not really sure what you're talking about but <laughs> But, but I guess this will do, you know, it's just, <laughs> this is Galadriel's magic for you. <laughs> I can show you things in a mirror, right? Right, right, Which, right. which is, yeah, interpretation. Yeah, no, and, and exactly that, that most of the things that, that, the, that the mortals look at the elves making as magical, as far as the elves are concerned, it's just their love of the elements that they're working with. Well, that's it. That's it's elemental, and there's a sense in which there's something being brought to the surface that uh, they can see that's latent in this stuff. That's part of its uh, essence. And I think that you know this kind of gets you to the out, Chris. What's that? Uh, can you hear me now? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So there's a there's this uh, uh, you know something elemental going on in Tolkien where it's it's very I think Aristotelian. Of course, there's a there's a sense in which there's a you know, latency or potentiality in things mm-hmm. that the elves can see and they bring to the surface. So they don't think that they're actually introducing anything and they're not, they're not coercing things into other things like Sauron and Saruman. They're, 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 they're trying to preserve. You know, when you think about the three elven rings, the three elven rings are, you know, by their nature uh, designed to preserve the goodness of things. But anyway, I want to get into Bombadil, though. You know, I, I saw that you, well, one of the things that prompted this was uh, I saw your uh, comment that Bombadil was like your second least favorite thing about Tolkien. I, don't I didn't know if, say that. Well, maybe, I, I'm sorry if I'm putting words you in. You are. That's one of, that was one of my Facebook friends. I oh, think, okay. Well, that. then. I think, I think Tom, Tom, Bombadil is absolutely key to the whole thing. Oh, good. So we're on the same page. <laughs> so, so, so tell us what you think about Tolkien or t- t- about Bombadil. Okay, so I, I was with the, the Forge of Tolkien, the series up to this point is still sort of giving you the elements of creation, as it were. The, I'm not yet deep into the stories, but Bombadil, Bombadil's, I think, episode four, um, is very important because if you, one, you know, it's like, could you leave him out of the movie? You know, we, he was left out of the movies because he's, quote, not essential, right? But he is... He's, he's, uh, this is giving my episode away a little bit, but um, he, he's the one who tells the, the hobbits the story that they're in, right? So mm-hmm. you could say he is, um, I think most of Tolkien, you're saying he's Aristotelian. I think he's very Augustinian always, which is why he likes history. Tolkien likes history so much because he wants us to see our lives in history as um, in the way that Augustine describes it in on catechizing the uninstructed that when you, when you're catechizing you are showing the catechumens the story that they are a part of right mm-hmm. that's what Bombadil does and mm-hmm. and and you and you and you remember the, the you know the, the scene that always just gives me chills to get to read there's two of them the field of Cromolin is one when um, Sam, that Sam and Frodo are there and they're being honored, and the bard mm-hmm. comes and is going to sing the song of Frodo and you know nine fingered Frodo and the Ring of Doom, right? And and Sam bursts into tears because right? he's there in the story, right? They've they've been talking about that when they're on the series of Kirithungal, um, about how they figured out that they're in the same story still, 
that's the story that Bombadil told them, right? And and you get you get some of it when Aragorn sings to them on Weathertop of um, of Baron Luthien, right? Mm. And you get another little bit of it when Bilbo sings at Rivendell about Arundel, but. It's if you read the Bombadil episode carefully, it's basically a baptism, right? Mm. They 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 enter into the old forest, which is stepping out of the Shire. So they're you know they're they've left their pri- their own primary reality, mm. and they've stepped into the old forest, and they have to go through the gate that Mary knows, and and they find themselves suddenly not in the Shire anymore. They're in fairy now, right? Yeah, in, yeah. In Tolkien's understanding. You're going to use this in your book, right? You will credit me, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and and they, the thing is, I think I think some of this I'm getting from Jane Chance, but I can't. I've been talking through this for so many years with my students that I'm not entirely clear where all of it came from. Sometimes, right? Um, whether it was Tolkien originally or whether it's me layering it on from my own experience, but they they come into the they come into the old forest, and Tom rescues them from being. Um, you know, eaten by the, the well, eaten by the tree, right? And then, the, and then the next day, they can't go out because it's Goldberry's washing day, right? So it's water, right? It's raining. Everything's raining. She's washing the world clean um, with her her own, well, her rain, right? right and because right. uh, she's a river daughter, and Tom uses that time to tell them stories, right? And they 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 had they lose the sense of how long they've been in the story. He's and and you it's it's like a page or so, but he he basically gives them the whole history of Middle Earth back to the time when the elves wake up and he was there before. And they 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 find themselves as if enchanted, right? Yeah, right. Magic the magic that happens in in the story is all falling under the enchantment of song. Right, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you think about the Anilindile is the song of creation, right? So, yep. and and Tom Tom can only speak in song. Basically, everything he talks in, it's like they right. don't know whether they're speaking or singing anymore. So they they've fallen into the harmony of being part of the ordered creation. And Tom shows them who they are, right? And they're washed clean. They and you know, the, the, mm. among other things, they keep getting in water, right? They've fallen in the river. He he drags them out of the river from the tree. And then he tells them stories on Goldberry's washing day, and and then they're all washed clean, and now they belong to the story. Right. And and, and there's also a dream element there, which I haven't I haven't completely unpacked in my episodes. The the one that I posted today, falling wide asleep, is about that that problem of you know sort of dreaming as as a time travel technique, which yeah. the hobbits do in the in Tom Bombadil's house, but the if reread the chapters again, right? right and realize right. how much how much is all packed in there that without Tom there, they aren't who they are, right? They don't know who they are, and they don't know the story they're in. They're going to find out more about it as they go along, right? Which is what it's like living as a Christian, right? You 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 continually find yourself yet again in the same story, but it's it's Tom. I mean, Gandalf has given Frodo a history of the Ring, right? Back in in the right. Shire, but but Tom brings them into this whole sort of enchanted understanding of their 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 real place in fairy. Right. He's absolutely essential. It's ridiculous that you can think that you can have this story without him. Yeah, I agree with that completely. There are a couple of things that you've introduced here that I hadn't thought about. One was the baptism element. I hadn't thought about Goldberry's washing day as baptismic, you know, baptismal. Mm-hmm. And I think that's great. I, I agree with you. And the, the idea of there being kind of introduced to the larger story and really, it's kind of a Genesis thing because he takes them back to the beginning. You know, he mm-hmm. takes them, he shows them that this is, this goes all the way back. 
And he, in an offhanded way, he actually talks about when, you know, uh, when the darkness wasn't fearsome and before the, the, the dark Lord came from the outside and enters into the creation. Uh, he remembers even that time. But yeah, that's, that's great. That's great stuff. I think, I think, you know, what came to mind is something I did think about it somewhat is that the, the dream element. When Frodo is asleep, he, see, he has this dream, which is revisited when he's going into the uttermost west, when he's on the, book, when he's on the, sh- the, the, the ship that's taking him to, to, to uh, you know, Valar, you know, the, the uttermost west. Uh, Bombadil's referenced right at that point uh, where, the, where the, he has, the, there's like this curtain of water, this, this rain, and he passes out of it. And then Tolkien tells you this is, this is the dream. This is the dream he had at the start in Bombadil's house. So there are there are places in Lord of the Rings where Bombadil is is referred to, and it, you know, and it's kind of catches by surprise, but it kind of shows you exactly what you say how integral Bombadil is to the entire story. How it, you know you can't really get the story if you don't have that episode with Bombadil, which everybody thinks, as you noted, can be sacrificed. Right, because it doesn't seem to drive the action but it frames it, it gives it its meaning. And everything, everything that the hobbits learn subsequently has to, when, when Bombadil tells the story, they don't really understand it. So it's just sort of colors and shapes and sheep on a hill and, you know, kings and, and it's, it's all very vague. But, but as you say, it goes back to creation and they, it's like he, he, he's, it's everything that hap- should happen at baptism. Right. And you think about, I mean, one of the bigger projects that I, I'm trying to get myself sort of launched on in my, my building project is one. I've been playing with those blocks all summer. I've also been um, writing poetry with a group that I have uh, in a, in a chat on telegram. We were the dragon common room and we're writing a, a long satire on um, the center, the centers, the centrisms, right. The, the sort of political problem uh, modeled on Alexander Pope's Dunciad. So we're, we're mm-hmm. sort of, <laughs> you know, multiple layering of, of which story we're in and, and, and so forth. And now I forgot what I was talking about because I wanted to tell you about the poetry. Um, <laughs> finding ourselves in the story. Creation. Creation. Baptism. I, baptism. Oh, the liturgy. <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and, and one of the things that I want to get myself to read over the next year is Guéringer's liturgical year, right? Um, the, the baptism happens at, properly in, in the medieval you know, practice, at the Easter vigil, right? Mm. What do you do at the Easter Vigil? You read the stories, right? And you, you start with creation and you go through, um, you know, various of the prophecies, the Ark, the Noah's Ark, and the dry bones and Ezekiel and, and so forth. And so, you know, that it's the baptism. It's like they're in the darkness and he tells them that story in the midst of the water. And there's got to be candle imagery. There's candle imagery. Yes, there's candle yeah. imagery in there too because when they first see Goldberry sitting um, on her in her chair, right? She's surrounded by water pots of plants, right? Water plants and candles. Right, right. It's 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 all a font, and and the thing is that with with as you know, once Tolkien was going back to mass, he, I think there were some years when he wasn't attending. But what, once he's once he's going to to mass daily. He's going to be in that liturgical cycle. There's all those like little Easter eggs, right? Like they leave right. Rivendell on December 25th, and yes. the fall is on March 25th. Right, mm-hmm. right, which is right. 80 day, which is you know, right. the day of recreation and the Good Friday and all these things. 
whether he means it to be allegorical, it's definitely liturgical, right, always. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I would I would talk about you know, analogical, but liturgical. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Analogical too, but the but the liturgical symbolism is going to be there in the, the matter, right? Yeah, yeah, and and the and the storytelling. Right. Yeah, I want to give these guys a, a chance to, to ask a couple of questions. But one of the things that I'd like to see you respond to is the episode with the Barrow White. Now, what you have there is very much a kind of uh, vision, I think, of final judgment. And uh, you've got the resurrection. You know, you, you know, when when Frodo call, you know, sings that little ditty, and Bombadil immediately appears. Mm -hmm. The the stones roll away. We're told, and then Bombadil's head appears in the opening with its feather and everything. And the sun is actually rising behind his head. And then he goes in and he casts the barrel white into the outer darkness. And you hear the, you, the wail of the barrel white as he, as he's cast out. And then the hobbits come out and run naked in the grass. <laughs> you know, there's this whole kind of, I think my baptismal imagery works. there. Too. <laughs> <laughs> now, now I want to go to the harrowing of hell. Okay. Um, that, that, that's what that always made me think of. Um, you know, Christ going to preach to the spirits who are in prison. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, you know, and the declaration to Satan that he's lost. Uh huh. And the redemption of the people who have gone before. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that was what that always made me think of. Yeah. Well, great. it works with, I mean, we're baptized into Christ's death. Right. Right. That's true too. So yeah. I think the death imagery works and the, and mm -hmm. the nakedness mm -hmm. and the, but I, so Chris, I don't actually talk about the barrel white I, in my, in my Bombadil episode, I mainly talk about the storytelling mm -hmm. part. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, you know, when you were retelling that with the barrel whites, I can see other ways in which it fits the baptismal liturgy as well. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that's I think it's good. I agree with you. Tom, do you have any thoughts? I, oh, I, and the heroin, the thing is the heroin of hell is going to fit there too, because of course, if you're, if you're having baptism at the Easter vigil, that's before the resurrection, right? right. So that's when Christ is yeah. in hell. So the, 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 the sort of it, uh, enfolding of time, mm. it liturgically is going to be happening in the, in Tolkien stories too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's rich stuff. Tom, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, um, maybe on the on the realm of kind of theological history and, and the way it expresses itself at the time. And I, I don't remember because I don't remember exactly what they were dealing with specifically uh, theologically, but I do know that it would have been in the air um, that the doctrine of creation, because it had been for a long time, had started to to really lose the kind of character and grip it had in you know with with medieval christianity for example forms orders orders of being and and there was um a, a, a very strong emphasis especially in the time with tolkien and lewis especially out of germany and different places on, on redemptive history but oftentimes redemption was read in very gnostic ways in, in in which it was a liberation from like we see today liberation from something and freedom but it was detached from created being order kinds fulfillment and and i i don't know that their stories were meant to address that but at least they they definitely 
we're, we're representing a fuller, I think, Catholic Christian vision or Orthodox Christian vision that, that uh, creation and redemption are, are, are to be held together. And creation has a form, order, and end, you know. Um, and, and, and in a way, it's, it's very prophetic literature, if you will, or, or comment, scripture commentary in a literary form because it is articulating a more consistent understanding of Christian creation redeemed than a lot of the, the, the theological world was offering in both not only Protestantism, but even Catholicism for a long time. I don't know if that's worth engaging, but that's something I, I No, I agree utterly. I think that, that yeah. that's, I mean, that both, I mean, both Tolkien and Lewis are very concerned with the, the, the imagery of creation and that Tolkien yeah. writes his creation story in the Anilindale and um, Lewis includes, I mean, both the space trilogy and Narnia have deep, you know, creational elements in them. Yeah. Um, and so when you were talking, I was thinking, you know, that, that actually, that, that's, I thank you. I, I need to think more on that sort of the theological climate that they were writing in. I mean, yeah. one, of, one of the things I, I thought you were going to go to was, of course, in the early evolution, evolution as a, as a yeah. replacement myth, right? Yes. And Lewis, right. Lewis does have that one little great essay on how evolution is the myth of modernity. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and he, both he and Tolkien would be very much against that because not maybe evolution is a mechanism, although my friend Vox has done some interesting live streams on how the mathematics don't work, which is worth <laughs> playing, playing out. Yeah, but yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're going to win, right? Creation yeah, trail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah. so Tolkien and Lewis are trying to do it artistically, but yes. they mean, they mean it also, mm -hmm. you know, sort of biologically and genetically, I think. Yes. Right. It's like, yes. where, where do we come from as creatures? Yes. Yeah, I think that one of the problems, Kirsten, you're probably familiar with this from your childhood, Rachel, is there's a kind of Gnostic uh, kind of, I guess, a Gnostic air to much of evangelical Protestantism. There's really no use for creation. They really do think it's all just going to burn and be, you know, so, it, you know, how do you invest yourself into something that's just going to be ashes? You know, there's, there's a sense in which, you know, creation, because uh, it's lost its uh, is, is, is sort of the, it, we've lost the thing that's redeemed, <laughs> you know, you know, yeah. we, we, we've redeemed, you know, within evangelical Christianity, you know, souls are redeemed, but bodies wow. are not. I, mm -hmm. I can't tell you the number of, of uh, evangelicals I've come across who have no problem with cremation, for example. I mean, it, they just think that the body is just some kind of, I guess, waste paper that is thrown, uh, thrown away at the end of the day. And they don't see how the rest of creation ties into the redemption as well. I don't know how they read uh, Romans 8 without having a sense that this is a very big redemption, <laughs> not, well, just, Chris, not just them. What, what, what's the, the thing that they always talk about? What's the great hope? It's to go to heaven. Right, right. Which is not scriptural. Right. <laughs> the new right. heavens and new earth. Right. The new earth is the thing that we, where we're going to be living. So yeah, but yeah, I think even when they sit right there. But I even think when they talk about that, they're thinking about a full replacement. It's kind of like the new model. It's not mm -hmm. as though, you know, the thing that was has been, you know, redeemed, but it's uh, kind of the replacement. Now you can throw that other one away and we get a brand new one. I, I think that's how a lot of, uh, evangelicals think. 
I think a lot of them don't even think about the new earth. It's just Swag. <laughs> That's right. I think you're right. Ice and sheets. <laughs> right, right. Anyway, this is great stuff, Rachel. Is there anything else you wanted to kind of, kind of, I, I love the liturgical element. I hadn't thought about that. Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about the church calendar. It's obvious now that you've mentioned it. The dates particularly. Um, I guess that's part of what it means. I, I, I guess that's what happens to you when you're when you're Presbyterian and you're not tied into the liturgical calendar. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I'd say yes of the of the variety of, of the variety of things that you know having to take this sabbatical from real life has given us. Although you know whether maybe maybe it's like we were you know Mar- the, in the end, the end of the world came in March 2020. Um, <laughs> that I've been. Um, watching mass daily, St. John Cantius um, ha- is served by regular canons here in Chicago, and they've actually had me come and talk about Mary uh, among uh, among other things. But um, they've been live streaming their mass every day, uh-huh. and so you know, before that, I was a Sunday I was a Sunday Catholic, and I guess I'm still sure. just sort of an online Catholic. But being able to watch mass every day and actually. Like I know that it's the feast of Saint Michael the Archangel today, <laughs> right, right, in right. in a way that I simply wouldn't have even last year, even though I know the dates. Right. And and instead of structuring your life around secular time, right. structure it on liturgical time. Right. This is this has been a very important, I think, you know, training for me to be able to to say what you know what is it like to praise God daily every morning with the mass and, and when it's physical, but it's not physical because I'm just watching it on, on my phone, right? Mm-hmm. Walking around outside in my backyard, but it's still, you know, it's sure, not, sure. not embodied in the way it's supposed to be. But at least the time is, is, is now structured, you know, symbolically as it should be with the mm-hmm. remembrance of the saints and the remembrance of the other feasts and, um, you know, closer in, we're never we're never living the midi, you know in the middle ages but yeah. to appreciate the aesthetic and imaginative and intellectual and devotional structure that they um you know built those cathedrals out of right yeah i think this is an important thing to say our show has a pretty wide range of people who listen to it mm. you know we have traditionalist catholics and we have very kind of neo puritan reform people and so forth. So if, if nothing less, you, you know, what you've told us is that you really can't understand Tolkien, who was a Roman Catholic, without right. the liturgical calendar. And I think and, that, that, that seems undeniable to me. And one actually can't understand the liturgical calendar without understanding Genesis, but one cannot understand Genesis without understanding the liturgical calendar. Because the rhythms, the kinds, the orders of being are what are that the agricultural pattern and everything else yeah, right, is, right. is 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 tied together. And 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 you know, even though Reformed have it in a loose way, they still they still order their calendars very much you know indirectly uh, t- tied to that. Um, you you can't you can't those things are connected. And that's the rhythm of creation is the ordering, the kinds, the being that is given in, in, in Genesis, the agricultural, the settings of times, the hours, the days, the cycle, right? I mean, all these things pattern the created order, which pattern the liturgical cycle. And, 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 uh, and is, you know, I think these people had, you know, Tolkien in particular, they had, a, they had oh, an yeah. insight into that, that, you know, many of us are just discovering. Right. <laughs> 
Anyway, so Glenn, do you have anything? You, you we probably should start wrapping up. I think we're at about, you know, the time that we normally bring this into a landing here as we've been flying along. <laughs> but uh, Glenn, do you have any, any thoughts or questions for, for Rachel at this point? Well, I'd actually like to have a longer conversation with you about what the heck is going on in medieval history. <laughs> I don't know. I'm building with blocks and writing poems and you know, I mean, but, telling but, but, stories. You know, from, from where I'm looking at it, it I mean, I, I did a lot of work in medieval, but I got my doctorate in 92. And I'm, I'm an early modernist, but I haven't really been working as closely in that as one might expect. Um, and I'm just looking at some of the stuff that's emerging out of medieval historians right now and, and kind of scratching my head and saying, where did that come from? So at some point, maybe I'd like to have a conversation with you about that. I, yes, that's another conversation. Yeah, yeah. totally yeah. different. Yeah. <laughs> so Tom, anything you want to say as we wrap up? No, thank you. That's all I can say for joining us. Nice to, to meet virtually in person, if that's a, even a category now. <laughs> but it's one step closer to the pub, maybe. Right, right. That's good. Do, do, do you travel at all, Rachel? Do you get out to the get out to New England at all at any, t any point? Maybe we can do this. Not, not, accident, not accidentally, uh, no. But, I mean, I have, I, I was out in New York in June, um, New York City, when Milo, Milo had me on his show um, to talk about the statues, the statue problem. Oh, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. But, yeah. but, you know, it's, it, it, anytime you, you, you think that you'll be in the area, you know, maybe we can bring you out for something. It'd be a lot of fun to, to do something in person. But, but, you know, as we wrap up, you know, I just want, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll put some links in the show notes to some different things, obviously to the Forge of Tolkien, but also maybe to your blog. Is that something that you'd like yeah. on the book? In the book. That book? Oh, um, yeah. So my, the Forge of Tolkien is on unauthorized TV and the subscription process is a little cumbersome. You subscribe and then they have to send you an access code and then you, you, you log in on the, the actual video site, which is not unauthorized.tv it's a different address but they have to give you the access code um my my book um on milo's and my adventures 2016-2019 is available through castelia house if we could put that link up that okay. would be great and then um, my blog has i mean has continuing adventures with milo on telegram and his chat over the last year or so but since may um talking about the poetry project that my friends and I are engaged in um, as well. If you're, if you're curious what we're doing with Alexander Pope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I think, I think we have a lot of people with a wide range of interests who listen to the show. And I think that yeah. there's some folks out there who'd love to know more about that. Anyway. Well, thank you very much, Rachel. We really appreciate you being on the show and taking the time to do this. And uh, we wish you all the best uh, with the forge and the book and all your other stuff. Thank you, Chris. All right. Well, thanks a lot for listening to the Theology Pugcast, folks. We appreciate your, your interest and the things that we uh, talk about, and we'll be with you again next week. And next week, uh, Glenn will be back from Nashville. Uh, he's going down to, to speak at the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network uh, conference, and uh, we're looking forward to a report, Glenn, on how that all went and, uh, and uh, whether or not you guys got arrested. Okay. <laughs> we'll do our best. That, that, that's a good way to get the rest of us to tune back in. That's right. Yeah, that's right. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.